Chapter 12 of What the White Race May Learn from the Indian by George Wharton James. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 12 The Indian and Hospitality. Another of the things I think we might well learn from the Indian is his kind of hospitality. Too often in our so called civilization, hospitality degenerates into a kind of extravagant, wasteful, injurious ostentation. I do not object, on formal occasions, to ceremonial hospitality, to an elaborate spread and all that goes with it. But in our everyday homes, when our friends call upon us for a meal or a visit of a week, it is not true hospitality to let them feel that we are overworking ourselves in order to overfeed and entertain them. When one has plenty of servants, the overwork may perhaps not be felt, but the preparation and presentation of extra fine meals should be looked upon as an unmitigated evil that ought to cease. Why is it that the professional lecturers, singers, and public performers generally refuse to accept such hospitalities? Everyone doing their kind of work knows the reason. It is because this high feeding unfits them for the right discharge of their duties. To overfeed a preacher, and I've been a preacher for many years, is to prevent the easy flow of his thought. It is as true now as when Wordsworth wrote it that plain living and high thinking go together. For the past five weeks I have been lecturing nightly in New York City. I am often invited to dinners and banquets, but I invariably refuse unless I am promised that a full supply of fruit, nuts, celery, and bread and butter or foods of that nature are provided for me and that I am not even asked to eat anything else. I don't even want the mental effort of being compelled to refuse to eat what I know will render my brain logy, heavy, and dull. Then again, when I am invited to a home where no servants are kept, as I often am, and see the hostess worrying and wearying herself to prepare a great variety of dainties and fine foods for me, that I know I am far better without, what kind of creature am I if I can accept such hospitality with equanimity? I go to see people to enjoy them, their kindness, their intellectual converse, the home-likeliness of themselves and their children. If I want to stuff and gorge, I can do so at any first-class restaurant on the expenditure of a certain sum of money. But at the homes of my friends, I want them. I go for social intercourse. And to see them working and slaving to give me food that is an injury to me is not, never can be, my idea of hospitality. I would not have my readers infer from this that I am unmindful of the kindly spirit of hospitality behind all this needless preparation nor would I have them think that I never eat luxurious things. I am afraid some of my readers would forego their kind thoughts toward me if they were to see me sometimes as I indulge in all kinds of things that ordinary people eat. But I do want to protest against the ostentatious and extravagant manifestation of our hospitality, 
and also the injuriousness of much of it when it comes to the food question, and to commend the spirit and method of the Indian's way. If friends come unexpectedly to an Indian home, they are expected to make themselves at home. They are not invited to the festive board to eat, but they are expected to share in the meal as a matter of course. Hospitality is not a thing of invitation, whim, or caprice. It is the daily expression of their lives. Everyone, friend or stranger, coming to their camp at meal times is for the time being a member of the family. There is no display, no ostentation, no show, no extra preparation. You are one of us. Come and partake of what there is, is the spirit they manifest. There is nothing more beautiful to me than to find myself at a Navajo Hogan in the heart of the painted desert, and to realize that I am expected to sit down and eat of the frugal meal which the family has prepared for itself. My contention is that this is the true spirit of hospitality. You are made to feel at home. You are one of the family. Formality is dispensed with. You are welcomed heartily and sincerely, and made to feel at ease. This is to be at home. This is the friendly, the human, the humane thing to do. Unnecessary work is avoided. The visitor is not distressed by seeing his hostess made to do a lot of extra cooking and fussing on his account. His heart is warmed by the friendliness displayed, and surely that is far better than merely to have his stomach filled. And furthermore, if he be a thoughtful man who values health and vigor, rather than the gratification of his appetite, he has saved the mortification and the annoyance of having to choose between the risk of offending his hostess by refusing to eat the luxurious obnoxities she has provided, or offending himself by eating them under protest and possibly suffering from them afterward. I was once visiting the Mojave Reservation at Parker on the Colorado River. It was a very hot day, and I was thirsty, weary, and hot. As soon as I arrived at the home of one old lady, she at once went out of doors to her wooden mortar, took some mesquite beans, pounded them, poured water over the flour thus made, and in a few minutes presented me with a copious drink that was both pleasing to the taste and refreshing. Look at her face as she kneels before the mortar. It is a kindly and generous face. She cared nothing for the fact that it was hot, or that it was hard work to lift the pounder and make the meal for the drink. She did it so simply and easily and naturally that I accepted the drink with the added pleasure that it was the product of a real and not an artificial hospitality. Few visitors to the snake dance and the different religious or thanksgiving festivals of the Indians of the Southwest have failed to observe the great amount of preparation that goes on for expected but unknown guests. It is known they will come, therefore, preparations must be made for them. Corn is ground in the matatis, and piki is made. An old Navajo Indian, 
pictured on the first page, is a wonderful illustration of the natural generosity of the aborigine before he is spoiled by contact with the white. Many years ago, this man, who had large possessions of stock, sheep, horses, and goats, with much grazing land, and several fine springs, was riding on the plateau opposite where the Pariah Creek empties into the Colorado River. Suddenly he heard shouts and screams, and rushing down to the water, saw a raft filled with men, women, and children dashing down the river to the rapids. When the raft and its human freight were overturned into the icy waters, he did not hesitate because the people were of a different color from his own. But, plunging in, he rescued all those who were unable to save themselves, mainly by his own valor. It turned out that the strangers were a band of Mormons seeking a new home in Arizona, and being met by the barrier of the Colorado River, had sought to cross it with their worldly goods upon the insecure and unsafe raft. What could they now do? Though their lives were saved, their provisions were nearly all lost in the raging rapids of the turbulent and angry Colorado. Bidding them be of good cheer, this savage Indian led them to one of his hogans, where immediately he set his several wives, for the Navajos are polygamists, to grinding corn and making large quantities of mush for the half-famished white strangers. He thus fed them daily for months. In the meantime, he allowed them to plant crops, he finding seed, on his land, using for irrigation, therefore, water from his springs. But he had not given himself proper care after his icy bath. His legs became drawn up by rheumatism, and from that day to this he has been a constant sufferer from his exposure to the cold water of the river and his after-neglect caused by his eager desire to care for unknown strangers. The awful irony of the whole thing lies in the fact that, in spite of what he had done, the recipients of his pure, simple, beautiful hospitality could not, or did not, appreciate it. He was only an Indian. He had no rights. They were American citizens, white people, civilized people. Why should this Indian own or control all this fine land, all these flowering springs, all these growing crops? It was wrong, infamous, inappropriate. Therefore, to make matters right, these grateful, civilized Mormons stole from him the best part of his lands, and the largest of his springs, and for years laughed at his protests, until, finally, a white friend was raised up for him in a brave United States Army officer, now a general in the Philippines, I believe, who presented the case of the Indian to the courts fought it successfully, and lived to see the Indians' wrongs in some small measure righted. To this day the Indian is known as Old Musha, the name given to him by the people whom he befriended in their distress, because mush was the chief article of the diet that his hospitality provided for them. 
truly did Shakespeare write, Blow, blow, thou winter wind, thou art not so unkind as man's ingratitude. That Indians know how to be beautifully courteous to their guests, I have long experienced. I have eaten at banquets at Delmonico's and the Waldorf Astoria in New York, the Hotel Cecil in London, the Grand Hotel in Paris, and many and various hotels between the Touraine in Boston and the Palace of San Francisco and the Hotel del Coronado. And I have seen more vulgarity and ill-breeding at these choice and elaborate banquets, more want of consideration, more selfishness, and more disgusting exhibitions of greediness and gluttony than I have seen in twenty-five years of close association with Indians. I was once expected to eat at an Indian chief's hawa, or house. The chief dish was corn, cut from the cob while in the milk, ground, and then made into a kind of soup or mush. A clean basketful was handed to me, with the intimation that I was to share it with two old Indians, one to my right, one to my left. I asked my hostess for a spoon, for I knew I had seen one somewhere on one of my visits. She hunted for the spoon, in the meantime sending to the creek for an estuar of fresh, clean water. When it was brought, she carefully washed her hands, and then gave the spoon seven scrubbings and washings and rinsings before she handed it to me. I felt safer in using it than I do many a time at a city restaurant when the culled brother brings me a spoon that he has wiped on the towel which performs the multifarious duties of wiping the soiled table, the supposedly clean dishes, the waiter's sweaty hands, and far oftener than people imagine, the waiter's sweaty face. During the time we were waiting for the spoon, the old Indians by my side sat as patiently and stoically as if they were not hungry. When the spoon was handed to me, I marked a half circle on the mush in front of me, in the basket, then divided the remainder for them. Each waited until I had eaten several mouthfuls before he inserted his own fingers, which served as his spoon, and then we democratically ate together. Now, to me, the whole affair showed a kindly consideration for my feelings that is not always apparent in so-called well-bred strangers of my own race. I've had many a man light a cigar or a cigarette at the table at which I've been compelled to sit in a restaurant with never a by your leave or is this agreeable from the indian we imagine that we ought not to expect much of what we call higher courtesy yet i find it constantly exercised while from the civilized white race we expect much and alas often are very much disappointed it is a singular thing that while I am writing these pages about the lessons we may learn from the Indian, the Bishop of London, speaking in Trinity Church, New York, in September 1907, should enunciate ideas remarkably similar to those held by the Indians. The Indian owns nothing for himself. It belongs to all his tribe. 
what is this but the stewardship, in a rude and crude fashion perhaps, but nevertheless stewardship, as declared by the bishop, who says, The one sentence which above all others I would say to you, a sentence as yet unheard in London and New York, and which, if adopted, would cleanse the life on both sides of the Atlantic, is, Life is a stewardship and not an ownership. Have you ever thought why there are any rich and poor at all? That is the question I had to face in London. They had asked me how I reconciled my belief in the good God loving all his children, with the wretched millions in East London seemingly abandoned by both God and man. I had to face that question, and I have had to face it ever since. There is but one answer. The rich minority have what they have merely in trust for all the others. Stewardship, non-ownership, is God's command to all of us. You are not your own. Nothing that you have is your own. We haven't learned the Christian religion if we have not learned the lesson of stewardship. My home has been the home of the Bishop of London for thirteen hundred years. Suppose I should say that it was my own, and that the bishop's income of fifty thousand dollars a year was my own. I would be called a madman. The man who thinks he owns what he has in his keeping is no less a madman. This applies alike to the boy and his pocket money, and the millionaire and his millions. Disregard of this trust is the cause of all the social evils of London and New York. To resume my experiences with the Indians. In September 1907, I again visited the Havusapai, and then had several wonderful illustrations of their real and genuine hospitality. We decided to camp below the home of an old friend of mine, Uta. As soon as our cavalcade of six persons on horses, mules, and burrows appeared with two pack-horses, he cordially welcomed us, and when I told him that we wished to camp below his awa, he took us into a fenced-in field where there were peach-trees and a corral for our animals. Here we were free from the intrusions of all stray animals, and were able to secure seclusion for the ladies of our party for, of course, we were camping out and sleeping in the open. Knowing that we should want plenty of water, both for ourselves and our animals, and that it was quite a little walk to Avasu Creek, he took his shovel, and in five minutes the limpid stream was flowing through the irrigation ditches close by. The peach tree over our heads, the best in the whole village, was placed at our disposal, and delicious indeed we found the fruit to be, and he sent us figs, beans, melons, and a cantaloupe. Without a question as to payment, he supplied us daily during our stay with an abundance of dried alfalfa hay, the fresh alfalfa not being good for our two civilized animals. And in every way possible to him, he sought to minister to our comfort and pleasure and did not resent it in the slightest when I bade him retire at meal times, 
or while we were cooking our provisions. That we paid him abundantly when we left did not in the slightest alter the sweet character of his genuine and simple hospitality. Another illustration of the most beautiful kind of hospitality and courteous kindness was shown by an old Hopi Indian woman pictured. I was visiting the Hopi Pueblo of Walpi for the purpose of studying the secret ceremonies of the underground kivas of the antelope and snake clans prior to the snake dance. For fifteen days and nights I never took off my clothes to go to bed, but went from kiva to kiva, witnessing the ceremonials, and when I was too tired to remain awake longer, I would stretch out on the bare, solid rock floor, my camera or my canteen, for my pillow, and go to sleep. Occasionally, however, when something of minor importance was going on during the daytime, I would steal upstairs to a room which I had engaged in this woman's house. As soon as I stretched out and tried to sleep, she went around to the children and the neighbors and told them that the black bear, my name with these people, was trying to sleep and was very, very tired. That was all that was necessary to send the children far enough away so that the noise of their play could not disturb me and to quiet any unnecessary noise among their elders. This I take to be an extreme courtesy. I know people of both low and high degree in our civilization who resent as an impertinent interference with their rights any suggestions that they be kind or quiet to their neighbors, much less strangers and aliens. But for my own sake, I would far rather that my children possessed the kindly sympathy shown by these Indian children than have the finest education the greatest university of our civilization could grant without it. End of chapter 12